This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Robin Oliveira to the podcast. Glad to have you with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you, Robin. Robin Frazier Oliveira, the author of the historical novel Winter Sisters, set in Albany, New York, was born in Albany, New York in 1954, grew up in nearby Loudonville, graduating from Shaker High School. I have talked with uh, Robin at one occasion in the past, so I already know the answer to this question. Do any members of your family still live here? No, it's very sad. I have four sisters. My parents have both died, and I have four sisters, and they have all moved away, as have I. So, I no longer have any relative there where I can go and stay and revisit. I see. But you have been here on book events. I believe last year you uh, spoke in Schenectady. I did. I frequently come back to, um, to when I write books about Albany, and I've spoken at uh, the Albany Institute of History and Art. And the last time I was there was to speak in Schenectady at the great public library there. And the reason that I spoke with uh, Robin is the Amsterdam Free Library uh, chose her book, uh, Winter Sisters, as their book of the year. And we uh, did a Skype interview, which was very well received at the uh, Amsterdam Library uh, not too long ago with uh, Robin Oliveira. Robin earned a degree in Russian literature or, actually, I'm not sure it was Russian literature. It was in Russian from the University Russian of... Russian language, yeah. Russian language. The University of Montana in 1976. Why did you do that? Why did you pursue the study of Russian? Well, it's funny. In the, the Capital District area um, and the North Colony School Districts was part of a Department of Defense program after Sputnik went up, and they wanted to teach Russian in the schools. And uh, the French class was full in seventh grade, so I ended up in Russian class, and I absolutely loved it. I took six years from seventh till twelfth grade, and when I went into college, the truth of the matter is I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I loved language, so I just pursued Russian, um, uh, so and got a degree in it, and was able to spend a month studying in Moscow in 1976 at the Pushkin Language Institute. So it was more of an accidental stumble into uh, the world of Russian, but I, I, I don't regret it at all. It, it, it is a fascinating language, and it allowed me to travel to Russia. Are you fluent in Russian? Can you speak Russian or read Russian now? I was fluent in Russian when I finished and when I lived in Moscow and of course it's very it's it's very difficult to retain a language unless you speak it on a regular basis. So I can get food in a restaurant if I need to. Um in the eighties in Seattle many Russians were coming here, were moving here and so I'd stumble on them in the grocery store and I'd help them because they didn't speak English. I was a CCU nurse for many years, and when we got Russian patients in having heart attacks, I was their nurse. But right now, I can carry on a casual conversation, but that's it. And you just uh, mentioned nursing. Uh, after your experience with the Russian language, uh, it says in your bio, you found this wasn't a viable career path, so you became a nurse specializing in, in critical care. Yes. Yes, it was extremely difficult uh, in the 70s to find something to do with Russian that didn't have to do with spying or espionage on some level. Um, so uh, I was hungry, 
<laughs> I became a nurse, and I found out that I loved that too. Uh, it just uh, worked for my personality. I loved being of service in that sense when people at there are most vulnerable. And critical care nursing, and I was also a bone marrow transplant nurse, there, it requires a lot of brain power to do that, and I, I appreciated both challenges. When did you get into writing and writing novels? Well, that was after I stayed home with my kids. I had my, I left nursing. I stayed home with my children, and when my son went to school, I started to think about whether or not I wanted to go back to nursing or I wanted to write. And the reason is because I love books. I have been a reader all my life, and I wanted very much to try to make one of those things that I loved. So when my son went into kindergarten, I spent those two hours, two and a half hours, teaching myself how to write. And then I went to the local community college evening classes and then the University of Washington extension classes. And I finally got a Master of Fine Arts degree um, in uh, writing at the Vermont College of Fine Arts, which is just very close to you all in Montpelier. Hmm. Why did you go cross-country for that? Um, It was a low-residency program, which means that you're on campus only 20 days a year. And there I liked liked their philosophy of education, which was pretty much a self-starting thing. It uh, mostly involves writing back and forth with a mentor, which is mirrors perfectly the life of a novelist. You spend most of your time alone in an imaginary world, and you have to do it on your own. And so it was, um, it worked for that. And I, uh, you know, that area is very familiar to me. And I didn't want to be in school full time in the sense that I would have to leave my kids mm-hmm. all day, every day. So it, it worked out very well for me. And we mentioned uh, that you live in Seattle, or you live outside of Seattle. I can't remember if this was on the uh, podcast interview, but when we called you, you mentioned how it's snowing where you are. And I gather, um, and this is just sort of a a shot in the dark, although I did see one reference to it in some um, Googling of, of you and your name, that you live in kind of a special part of you know, the Seattle area. Is that am I anywhere near the truth here on something? I, I, think, I think it's a very special part. It's the, the place where I live is called Cougar Mountain. And I tell people it's the first mountain on the right as you leave <laughs> Seattle. It's, um, <clears throat> it's full of history up here. There are indeed still cougar. Indeed, there are also bobcat, coyotes, bear, um, deer, all of which traipse through my backyard. And it's also a place where uh, coal mining was established in the 1800s. So it's been populated by uh, folks uh, for quite a long time, since about, well, immigrants, uh, not really immigrants, but people came to Seattle since about 1865 or so to start the coal mining, and of course Mm -hmm. before that. Native Americans, but it's a beautiful place uh, full of wildlife. Hmm. 
We're talking with the author Robin Oliveira about her books. And let me ask you about your first novel first and then go on to the one that uh, was part of Amsterdam Reads, uh, the one that was reading for Amsterdam Reads, uh, set in Albany, New York, as was your first novel in part, uh, which was called My Name is Mary Sutter, about uh, an early uh, female physician in the Civil War. What led you to write that book? I wrote that book uh, because the fictional character appeared to me, which I know sounds kind of crazy and hasn't happened since, but one day I was dusting my dining room and I had this vision of a young woman in period dress uh, seated at a trestle table looking through a brass microscope. It was nighttime and behind her there were textbooks. So I didn't know who she was or what she wanted, but I started to do uh, research into women in science And that is when I discovered that 17 women, the number varies a little bit, but 17 women became physicians out of their experiences in the Civil War, either as a nurse or as volunteers. And that intrigued me because I had never heard anything like that before. So so that was the impetus for the novel. Hmm. And uh, Mary Sutter had been a midwife in Albany and then uh, became a, a surgeon during the war, right? Yes, there were very, I tried to imagine my way through how somebody could have actually done what she did or she was going to do. And I, I knew that women in medicine at that time were mostly midwives delivering babies. And I thought that that would be an excellent uh, way for her to have some experience under her belt before she went down to become part of the war. Mm-hmm. And this was a very successful novel. Was it your your first novel, the first out of the box here? Well, it's actually my second novel. I, like many novelists, have a novel in the drawer that no one will ever read. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the first published one is My Name is Mary Sutter. And another connection, and I asked you this before when we did the uh, Amsterdam uh, Reads interview, um, I, w- I would think that with your background in medicine yourself, you know, this is uh, not that it's easy to write, but you kind of know the score there. Yes, it was. I did a, I did a lot of research into medicine in the 19th century and during the Civil War, and there's an abundance of research available. And what, what was helpful to me as a modern nurse was to be able to read those, the, those medical histories and see exactly where they were going wrong, where the doctors were going wrong, where the nurses were going wrong, uh, what, what medical procedures were, were, um, were detrimental to soldiers as well as those which were helpful from a modern perspective. And so it, it helped me decipher a lot of that uh, information probably more easily than a layperson would have. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Robin Oliveira, about uh, her writing career. We've been uh, discussing her uh, novel, My Name is Mary Sutter. Uh, In just a moment, we'll get on to the uh, newer book, Winter Sisters, uh, right after this word for the Historians Podcast. This is Bob Cudmore. You can help us with our annual fund drive for the Historians Podcast. You can uh, go to the following GoFundMe site, gofundme.com forward slash 2019 
dot the dot historians. If you'd rather donate to by writing out a check and sending it uh, in the mail, we have information on our website, bobcudmore.com, and how you can accomplish that. We do appreciate any a contribution to our fund drive. The goal for 2019 is $4,000. Thank you very much. Our guest on the podcast is Robin Oliveira out in Seattle, Washington. Uh, let's turn to the book uh, Winter Sisters, which is the 2019 book of the year for the Community Reads program, uh, Amsterdam Reads, and that's Amsterdam, uh, New York, my hometown. In that book, Mary Sutter is also a character. I mean, Mary Sutter from your very successful uh, earlier uh, novel, My Name is Mary Sutter. Uh, how was it that uh, you brought her back into this particular story? I toured a lot with that first book, and people, readers were always asking me, uh, can you write another Mary Sutter novel, please? But I could never think of anything that was quite as uh, challenging for a character as a woman going into the war to do medicine. Um, until <laughs> I I was doing research for the novel that I thought I was going to write currently uh, for uh, about women in Russia during the revolution there. And as you do when you're researching, I ended up in a Google sort of rabbit hole. And I learned that in uh, the state of New York and in 13 other states in the Union, the age of consent uh, was uh, 10 years old. And I immediately abandoned my Russia book and thought I needed to write a novel about this. And because I know Albany so well, I thought I would set the book again in Albany. And, and then suddenly uh, I needed a woman physician uh, it, for the plot. And uh, it dawned on me that if you're in the 19th century in Albany and you need a woman physician, who are you going to call? You're going to call Mary Sutter. And that's how she came back into the novel. Hmm. It, was, it was serendipitous, I have to say. Well, And as luck would have it, you had made that character be from Albany, New York, right? Yes. Yes. If she was from Amsterdam, New York, I would have set the novel in Amsterdam. But I see. <laughs> that's, that's how it all worked out. Yeah, something. And Winter Sisters... You set in the year 1879, but you feature the blizzard of 1888. How does that work? I needed some way for my two little characters, Emma and Claire, my two winter sisters, to uh, disappear in a way that would be confusing and uh, would be obscure so that people would give up looking for them. So uh, I... I thought that I was reading, doing the research, and I saw that there was that blizzard in 1888. And I thought, well, I am going to move that snowstorm <laughs> to 1879. I, I didn't feel too badly about that. I usually follow history almost to the T. But Albany is known for its terrible storms, as is all of upstate New York. And I thought it wouldn't be um, too much of a stretch to have a similar snowstorm occur at the same time because blizzards came without warning in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and I thought that I could use that. And the other, the other thing, the other element of not perhaps placing it in, you know, setting the novel in 1888 when the blizzard, real blizzard came is that I needed there not to be very many telephones, 
And I also, by 1886, the age of consent had changed. So I had to do a little cheating with the weather, but not too much because, as we all know, uh, winters are bad in upstate New York. <laughs> yes. Um, and the age of consent, which we've been referring to, that is the consent to sexual intercourse. Um, y- yes. Uh, and you told a, a reporter up here, I believe from the Daily Gazette, where I write my uh, Amsterdam area history columns, that some people you found shied away from your book because of, of the content. Do you mean the graphic descriptions of the physical and emotional damage done by the repeated rape of a young girl? I think, first of all, I, w- I, would, I would quibble maybe with the uh, description of them as graphic. I was very careful in this book to present the situation uh, with as much delicacy uh, and care as I could so that it was not exploitive. That, that was my goal. Um, what, what, uh, what we read in the novel is the sort of psych more there are some physical aspects of it in the aftermath that you read about but there's more of a psychological sense of how uh um young a young girl could survive um uh the experience of having sexual intercourse at 10 unwanted sexual intercourse and so i i was very careful about addressing that and i think that people don't realize that they think that uh it might be melodramatic and exploitive where Instead, it's uh, there's a there's a, a doctor involved, my very careful Mary Sutter, and very loving people who are helping this girl to recover. Mm. So I uh, I um, I like to reassure people that they can be safe reading it while still understanding the implications of that challenge for a young girl, partly because. Sex trafficking continues around the world uh, for young children, and it's a it's a contemporary issue that I tried to investigate carefully through an historical lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of it seems to me issues you bring up that apply to 1879, but also apply to the uh, current day. Um, for for example, Mary Sutter uh, faces uh, kind of a glass ceiling. You know, it sounds like it was all well and good that you know, with the guns blazing and they needed every hand they could on the operating table. Well, yes, we'll have a a, a woman doctor, but after the war, kind of uh, I don't know if it's a reaction, but it's kind of a pushback uh, sets in, and a, a lot of people are skeptical of her. Yes, that's exactly right, and and that that was because historically that's what happened. Uh, after the war, uh, as happens with many wars, the women who have stepped up to um, to do roles that they don't usually do are then pushed back in, as you say, into uh, more traditional roles. And this happened historically for women. After the Civil War, uh, women physicians were barred from entry to many hospitals, in, including being barred from entry to many medical schools. And so as strong as Mary Sutter is in my first book, my name is my, my name is Mary Sutter. In Winter Sisters, uh, it's 15 years later, and she's discovering that she has to keep fighting. She has to fight in a way that she didn't have to fight for fight before, and I and that's been true after World War II for women, after World War One. 
So it's a so it's a sort of an historical pattern that recurs that I was uh, happy to reflect in Winter Sisters because I do tend to be very interested in 19th century glass ceilings. Mm. Robin Alavera is uh, with us. Uh, her uh, latest book, Winter uh, Sisters. Uh, you said uh, you documented, or the um, a lot of the incidents are related to the blizzard uh, of 1879 or of, of 1888, including the fact that there were uh, many deaths uh, in the Albany area uh, from the from the blizzard. Is that historically so? Yes, there were. I I I, um, I think there were about. Okay, so my, I'm a little fuzzy here, but I think between 5 and 12 people, the deaths were attributed to the storm in Albany. But around uh, New England, uh, uh, including New York City, up through New Hampshire, Maine, 400 people died in that blizzard. Forecasting wasn't available, and the storm hit in the middle of the day. And it, uh, it, it, was, it was a devastating whiteout, hurricane-force wind blizzard that took everyone by surprise. In researching the uh, book, you, I, I imagine, we're, we're back in Albany uh, quite a bit. You've uh, referenced the Albany Institute. I believe you also did uh, research at Albany Law because I don't think it gives too much of the story away uh, to say that uh, there's a big uh, court battle or, or, or trial that takes place in uh, in Winter Sisters. And to what extent you could, you maybe used actual, um, I don't know, information that you found about trials in uh, the 19th century in Albany in the book? Yes. I, through the magic of the internet and the telephone, I did not come to Albany for this book to do the research. There's so much available Mm -hmm. online now. I called uh, the Albany Law School and wrote to them to try to suss out some very fine details uh, for the law of uh, eight, the, lo- the law of sexual consent. Um, but there are a lot of Albany or New York statute books here at the University of Washington Library, so I was able to access them. What, um, uh, what was the latter part of that? The, oh, the trial transcripts. Mm-hmm. I... Um, you know, it, it can take a very long time sometimes to find some things that are more buried in digitized archives. But after a great deal of, of searching, I was able to find about 200 19th century trial transcripts around rape. And uh, many of the questions in the trial section of the book are taken directly from those transcripts. Mm. Um, so, uh, the introductory sentences, which are different than uh, occur now, and many of the questions that both the prosecutor and the defense attorney asked, I pulled directly from those historic transcripts. And I believe uh, you told us at the Amsterdam gathering that you used the name of a real district attorney from uh, Albany County. I did. Uh, his name is Hotailing, and I use uh, city directories a lot, uh, historic city directories, and I found, I found that uh, the name of the district attorney was Hotailing. And I, I like to take my fictional characters and pop them into non-fictional history as much as possible, 
in a in an attempt to evoke as much as possible the, the past and to make you feel as if you've taken a time travel into the past. And one of the vehicles for me is to use historic characters and names. Uh, and so I used Mr. Hoteling. <laughs> it seems to me there there are a lot of threads in this book or, or different oh, areas of interest and, and knowledge. There's medical, legal, industrial, how the rich lived, how the poor lived. How did you manage all these uh, threads in the book, you know, to keep the story moving on? <laughs> uh, it's always a bit of a dance. Um, first off, I like I like a really thick book. I like a book with a lot of subplot uh, because subplot magnifies theme. And so in order to make a book feel rich with detail, um, I am very careful to infuse every single element with as much, um, uh, I want to say verisimilitude, as much truth as possible so that I can evoke the story and make the story spring from the page. What that involves is uh, making um, every sentence count um, and having each character have their own arc, their own uh, character arc, so that they can, um, uh, so that all the the story can completely flow together and intertwine and so that when you get to the end, all these elements pop at once. And and that, that just takes time. That takes time and rewriting and more rewriting so that um, every filament of the story is as strong as it can be. Again, this is a question I asked you at the gathering in Amsterdam. Uh, Albany has a lot of people writing about it. Um, Maybe chief among them being Bill Kennedy of the New York State Writers Institute. Was his work of any uh, use to you? Well, it was of use to me as a reader. I mean, I read William Kennedy as soon as his books come out. And Probably unlike many others, um, one of my favorite books of his is The Flaming Corsage, which is Mm. set in the early uh, 1900s. I think Bill Kennedy's writing is extraordinary. uh, But when I was writing my Albany books, I had to stay away from his books because, you know, what can happen when you write is your your mind just suddenly imitates. So... um, I appreciate his work. I think his work is amazing, and he stays in Albany. He lives in Albany, and so there's that wonderful sense of richness of somebody who stayed there, uh, lived there, stayed there to live. Um, I think he is, of course, like everybody else, an extraordinary writer. Robin Oliveira with us on the Historian's Podcast, her book, uh, Winter Sisters. Well, what is going to, what, what's next? Are you working on another book? I am working on another book. I I don't usually talk about a book when I'm writing it because it tends to dilute the plot and the conflict. For me, it has to stay on the page. But I can say that uh, this past October, I went on a 10-day trip to Scotland to do some research for the novel. Ah, so it doesn't look like another Albany book. Albany will not be in this book. I find um, I have an idea for another one, which will probably come after this next one that I'm writing. I think there's, I think there's a possibility for a trilogy with Mary Sutter. She's still young. <laughs> right. So what, what you're saying is not the book you're working on, but maybe the book after that will 
have something to do with Albany and maybe even Mary Sutter? Maybe even Mary Sutter, maybe even um, Emma and Claire, the winter sisters of the novel. Oh, of course, because they're young girls in 1879, but they'll, they'll grow older, will they not? They will, and they'll experience a lot of change, suffrage, um, more uh, travel available, telephones, cars. There's so much history that can be uh, evoked uh, in their story as they uh, sort of grow out of their experience in Winter Sisters. Do you think you'll ever revisit Russia for a book? Well, I'd love to. That that first that book I was thinking about um, before I wrote Winter Sisters and doing some research for uh, is still turning around in my brain. Uh, plus, I'd love to go back and uh, and uh, revisit Moscow and Saint Petersburg. Want to thank you, uh, Robin Oliveira, for joining us on the Historians Podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been great to talk to you. And Robin's uh, current uh, book is Winter Sisters. You've been listening to the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>